Chapter 13 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 On the Tropia Track to Potosi. March 18th. At daybreak, Manuel gathered some sticks, lit a fire on the floor of our bedroom, and prepared our matutinal mate. This is indeed a grand drink to pull one together. It beats coffee altogether. It has, I believe, another property, that of acting as a substitute for vegetables and correcting the evil effects of a meat diet. For the natives of the Pampas is exclusively carnivorous, gorges himself with beef like a wild beast when he can get it, eating no vegetables nor even bread. But he fills up all his leisure moments between meals in sucking up from the bombilla this marvelously sustaining decoction of the Paraguayan yerba. This day we rode across a charming country, more undulating than ever, for we were skirting the outer ridges of the Sierra. We crossed many dry beds of rivers, where oleanders flushed the bed of silent torrents, gravel spread, and traversed, to repeat an expression I have before used, a land of birds and flowers, a bocage of many shrubs, all in blossom, of many colors, of many scents, with fruits, amber and purple. Among others, we observed the various mimosas, the honey tree with its snow-white blossoms smelling of honey, cacti, and prickly pears with large ripe fruit. Below our feet was soft grass in places. Everywhere beautiful flowers, gorgeous as if cultivated with greatest care in a British hothouse. We were very hot and thirsty by midday, for the parching north wind was blowing, but all the river beds we passed were dry, so we had to ride on. At last, about 2 p.m., we reached a small, shallow pool of foul water, left by the last rains. We had to make the best of this, so called a halt, unsaddled, lit our fire, and got the asado underway under the shade of a large algaroba blanca. The muddy water of the pool was not very nice, rotten and hot as it was. However, we enjoyed the asado, which we flavored with the little red peppers which grew plentifully at our feet. Then came the usual siesta, very necessary in this climate, under the drowsy shade of our tree, among the polyanthi blossoms, while insects kept up a perpetual hum around, and the parrots a screaming aloft at our intrusion. We reached this evening a little place called Las Talas, which is important enough to possess a judge, a worthy man who keeps a store and a billiard room. We put our horses in his corral for the night and gave them a feed of alfalfa. He kindly let us have a mud outhouse inhabited by frogs, lizards, and fleas for our own accommodation. He would have let us occupy the billiard room had it not been for a great match that was coming off therein this night between the two great billiard players of the district. March 19th. This day's journey was across a similar country. At long intervals we passed a house. No rich estancia, such as not to be found in this poor province, but a mere rancho of some small proprietor or squatter. Round each, as a rule, was a small plot of maize or alfalfa. We slept this night in the village of Avianeda. March 20th. This was a lovely day, hot, of course, but tempered with delightful breeze. We were now in the Sierra, and the track wound down pleasant wooded valleys and over ridges whence we looked over many leagues of undulating jungle and pasture. 
we passed through a forest of charcoal, where a monte fire must have been raging fiercely for weeks, the ground being still uncomfortably hot beneath our horses' feet. Footnote. I trust that my readers by this time understand that monte does not signify mountain, as one would not unnaturally suppose, but what the Australians understand by the term bush. Our midday halt in Asado was by the banks of a stream of clear water running over a sandy bed. Here, too, we found a deep, cool pool, wherein, to Manuel's surprise, we bathed. In the afternoon we came to a new country. We left behind us the monte, with its various shrubs, and traversed a land where hill and dale was covered with pampa grass, while clusters of dark, stunted palm trees were scattered here and there. By and by these became thicker, till at last we penetrated a dense forest of palms. From the hilltops we perceived that as far as our vision could reach, the whole landscape was black with this gloomy-looking species of that graceful family. Here and there, rapid streams crossed our path, cleaving steep channels through the dark, loamy soil. At sunset, we reached a solitary house on a height, which is known by the name of Santa Cruz. It is a large and straggling building of unbaked brick and served as the post house in the days before the Tucuman Railway withdrew travelers from this route. It stands alone on a bare hill and commands one of the most solemn and melancholy views imaginable. All around it, one looks over a seemingly illimitable expanse of black palm heads, covering mountains and vast plains right away to the horizon. The owner came out as he saw us approach, a dark, handsome, pure-blooded white with all the sternness and dignified politeness of his Spanish stock, a wild-looking lot of domestic animals, pigs, children, and two or three cutthroat-looking fellows followed to stare at the strangers in the garb of civilization, relatively speaking, for Bond Street would have stared for other reasons. We saluted him in the ceremonious manner of the land, whereupon he invited us to dismount. After a little conversation and mate, he placed a mud outhouse, far inferior to an English pigsty, at our disposal. Herein we arranged all our impedimenta, but slept outside in our blankets. Our horses were safely lodged in the corral. The ladies of the house brought us the mate, and we were much struck by their remarkable beauty. At times, in the wildest parts of the Republic, the traveler comes across the most perfect type of refined white beauty among poor people like these were. One of these was the loveliest woman of the Spanish type of beauty I had ever seen, with splendid complexion, teeth, and eyes, and long raven hair hanging in two tails almost to her heels. There was evidently no Indian blood in this family. Here was the old Spanish stock of the conquistadores, unsullied by mixtures with lower races. A regular patriarchal house was this, where all the old-fashioned customs of the grand colonial days when Spain was great were still rigidly observed. Our host was surrounded not only by his stalwart sons and beautiful-eyed daughters, but by his pretty grandchildren and his now aged and helpless father and mother, a happy and upright family of the good old style, over whose heads the peaceful years pass by uneventful and uncounted, as the sons tend their herds and grow their maize in the clearings of the forest of waving palm, unmindful of the revolutions and the ambitions that stir the hearts of the citizens of the great cities by the sea. 
When we had rolled ourselves up in our blankets for the night, we heard our host, a good Catholic that he is, reading out the evening prayers to his assembled family, while at intervals the hum of their subdued voices joining in was heard above the shrill cicada and the crackle of the palm leaves. In the morning, Jardine asked our host to what amount we were indebted to him. Give me what you think right, senor, said he. Of course, you were my guest last night for supper. What may be the worth of the alfalfa we gave your horses in money, I know not. You from the city know better than I what things are worth in money. We know what this leaving it to you, sir, means in England. But here our host spoke it in all simplicity, for after we had given him what we thought to be right, he held a consultation with his beautiful wife, and then insisted on returning it all, with the exception of twelve reals, saying that he was sure the alfalfa was not worth more than that, and that sum, at any rate, would pay him very well. Such was the primitive country we had now reached, a land where hospitality is still as much a duty as among the Arabs themselves. Here, where inns are almost unknown, the traveler, as a matter of course, rides up to any house, rich or poor, doffs his hat, and asks for hospitality for the night. The host responds by bidding him dismount, and informs him that all he has is at his disposition. In the house of a wealthy man, as wealth goes in this poor country, you would insult your host by offering payment. In the house of a poorer man, the traveler, if he can afford it, pays for the alfalfa for his horses, maybe for the beef he himself consumes, but never for the lodging. A man without a cent can travel from one end of this republic to the other and never want, for no one dare refuse food to the stranger, if there be any in the house. The Argentine has his vices, and they are great vices, but he has his virtues also, and they are also great. March 21st. This day's ride was across a desolate country, an undulating waste of dark palms with here and there in strong contrast with their gloom, extensive barren stretches of salt sands glaring in the sunshine, for we were now traveling along the narrow strip of land that lies between the Sierra and the Salinas, and partakes of the character of both. We passed no house during the day, and, having taken no beef with us, had to content ourselves with bologna sausage and water for our first meal. At sunset, we came across a solitary house, the Estancia of Rosario, a more substantial-looking place than we had yet seen in this province. The owner also had shown a tendency to please the eye when planning out his dwelling, a very rare thing in this country where a man builds his ugly mud house for use alone and considers it very foolish to waste his sweet leisure in any superfluous ornamental work. As I have before remarked, the native's estancia is rarely surrounded by any attempt at a garden. It is far too lazy, as a rule, even to cultivate vegetables, far less flowers and ornamental shrubs. But here we found very delightful residence indeed, with many signs of refinement within and about it. The house was built on an eminence overlooking an extensive landscape of hill and dale, jungle, pasture, and palm forest. Beautiful creepers wound about the pillars of the wooden portico. A really pretty garden with well-laid-out beds spread in front, surrounded with a hedge of cactus and prickly pear. 
as we rode into the enclosure of this model farm of south america a regular menagerie of dogs geese ducks and hens saluted us we perceived sitting under the flower-covered portico now glowing in the setting sun a comely matron of the true castilian cast of countenance busy over the lace she was working she yet had time to superintend all the little country duties at which her group of pretty daughters and the indian servants around her were employed a large fire of wood blazed in the centre of the courtyard over which hung a huge copper cauldron from which came forth a pleasant simmering and gurgling and a not unpleasant sweet smell the girls stirred fed and tasted the contents at every instant great expectancy and excitement seemed to centre in that preparation and no wonder for like the primroses mothers and daughters prided themselves on being the most industrious housewives and the most clever fruit preservers of the province they were making nothing less than ropa that is prickly pear jam and what little country family is not excited when comes the important preserving season the indian girls came in constantly from the bush with huge baskets of the wild fruit on their heads while the daughters of the house deftly peeled them no easy matter for a novice to do this without filling his hands with millions of irritating almost invisible darts figs too from the patriarchal fig trees were being laid out to dry on raised platforms of plaited reeds as we rode in there was a flutter of alarm among the girls and they gathered around their mother like chickens round a hen and gazed at us wonderingly with their big black eyes for a body of armed strangers is not always a welcome sight in this wild and revolution-ridden country the lady of the house rose stately from her chair and returned our salute with a dignified bow we explained to her that we were only poor harmless benighted gringos who craved her hospitality for the night as a matter of course she offered her all at our disposal so dismounting we sent our horses to the corral with manuel and sat down with the handsome girls and their comely mamma to drink mate our story much interested them they had read of the yacht in the cordoban papers and also of our intended ride therefore our hostess said smilingly with true spanish grace you are not strangers to us but at home she told us that they were citizens of cordoba where her husband now was she and her daughters were passing a few months in this their country farm for the benefit of their healths for the second time in twenty-four hours the falcons all irrevocably lost their hearts march twenty-second on the morrow it was with reluctance that we gathered our impedimenta together in order to leave this oasis of civilization in the pleasant society of fair and gentle ladies but we were not to start quite so soon as we expected manuel came up to us and informed us that our horses had broken through the corral in the night and had decamped this was startling news they might have wandered leagues away by this time and small chance of recovering them in that case or the terrible thought flashed across our minds stolen no says manuel confidently they are not stolen see pointing to their fresh footprints in the soft soil of the corral they have gone through that break and that too not three hours ago and none of the men's footprints around here are nearly as fresh as that to have distinguished the prints of our horses feet iron-shod as they were from the others was easy enough 
but it required the instinct of the gaucho to detect that no man had been in the neighborhood at the time of their departure for some of the human footprints of brown seemed quite as fresh to us as the barks of our animals manuel was confident though and he proved to be right for after tracking the horses some two miles through the bush we found them quietly grazing by the side of a stream so we captured the deserters and brought them back having saddled our runaway horses we continued our journey the undulating country was now densely overgrown with cacti prickly pears palms and thorny mimosas a land of poor and rare pasture but of plentiful water for down every valley a little arroyo of limpid water runs over the yellow sands at midday we came to a mud rancho the woman who seemed to be its sole inhabitant permitted us to rest awhile under the huge carob tree which as usual hereabouts spread its broad branches some twenty yards in front of the threshold and whose shade serves in this primitive land as a sort of spare room for friends and travellers this lady provided us with some algoroba for our horses for ourselves charqui and maiz ears which latter roasted over the fire are a very fair substitute for bread here away from the perennial pastures of the pampas it is usual for each ranchero to cultivate his little plot of maize or alfalfa necessity forces him to become against his instincts somewhat of an agriculturalist as well as a shepherd we lit our fire under the carob cooked our meat and made merry during the sultry noon of this torrid land for those of my readers who have never tasted jerky a few words on this widely consumed delicacy will not be amiss Charqui is merely beef cut into long, thin strips and dried in the sun. When fresh, it is not bad, but it rarely is fresh. And after these lean shreds have been hanging outside a rancho in the hot, dusty air, for I am afraid to say how long, they form anything but a luxurious diet. The charqui then becomes so much third-rate leather. All the juices have been completely dried out of it, and the grilling of it on an asador over a wood fire does not tend to soften it. The toughness that beef thus treated can acquire is a thing to be experienced, not told. Conceive first the ideal abstract stringy toughness. Then, as to flavor, imagine a sort of charnel house fly-blown taste, for be it remembered that all these months that the charqui is hanging in the sun an average half-inch deep layer of flies is settled on it. Lastly, do not forget that this is one of the dustiest regions in the world, and that you will consume your orthodox peck of dirt before you have got through half a dozen meals of these delectable rags, and you will have formed some idea of what charqui is, a teeth-testing dish with a vengeance. Having torn and worried and masticated some particularly choice old high-toned fragments, we lay down under our carob tree to enjoy our well-earned siesta and rest our aching jaws. But we were soon awakened by an approaching sound, a confused murmur coming from the north. Then we distinguished the lowing of a vast multitude of oxen, the tread of thousands of hoofs, and the shouting of men. At last the great herd appeared out of the bush, a thousand head of cattle at least, lean and halt and weary with their long journey over the herbless, waterless country that lay to the north of us. About twenty wild-looking horsemen were in charge, with gay ponchos fluttering in the breeze. Some were barefooted, 
Others had their feet encased in raw skins of foals' legs. This is the orthodox gaucho chasher. It is prepared by simply cutting off the hind leg of a foal and withdrawing the bone and the flesh. The man's foot and leg are then thrust into this natural boot. To guard the legs of the riders against the fearful thorns of the northern jungle, each horse had two shields or breastplates of stout rawhide, extending like two wings in front of the saddle and falling to below the stirrup irons. About eighty remount horses followed the herd. The cattle were rounded in for their midday halt just above us. Then the chief, a great swell with silver spurs, rich poncho, polished top boots with very high heels, and mounted on a splendid horse, rode up to the rancho and craved permission to take water from the laguna for his beasts. An introduction was soon effected between this gentleman and ourselves, and he insisted on our joining him at breakfast. Vain was it to declare that we had just completed our meal. Breakfast again with him we must. There was one little bull in the herd that was very lame, so our new friend had him lassoed, pithed, cut up, and converted into asados in an incredibly short space of time. We sat down with him, ate the sweet beef with our fingers, and drank the red wine he had brought with him with much pleasure. Luxurious indeed were these to us after our charky and tepid laguna water. Bidding farewell to our hospitable friend, we rode on till we reached the first township we had seen since Jesus Maria. This was Chañares, a wretched little place in the midst of an uninhabited, untilled plain of palm and thorns. The raison d'etre of a town in such a spot is more than I could discover. There were only from twenty to thirty houses, and half of these seemed to be deserted and in ruins, for the unbaked mud bricks of this country do not form very substantial buildings, they soon fall to pieces when left to themselves. We dismounted in front of the solitary store, entered it, and called for a tot of caña all around before commencing business. The bottle was put before us in one glass, water they had none on the establishment. We inquired of the storekeeper if it was possible to find accommodation for ourselves and our horses for the night in this city. He thought that to find this would be a matter of difficulty, as most of the houses were one-roomed. By this time, half the population was around us, for the news of our arrival had spread like wildfire, the visit of travelers, and what is more, foreign travelers being a very rare occurrence indeed here. Some made suggestions as to where we might possibly get what we required. One little Indian girl, carrying a naked, very open-eyed baby, said she knew of a house that belonged to a recently deceased gentleman. This mansion was now deserted, as the defunct had left no testament or kin behind him, and it might suit us. We visited this eligible villa, which was in the outskirts of the city. If, in the days of the late lamented proprietor, it was anything like it is now, I do not wonder that he decided to leave it for a more comfortable mansion in another world. It was a mud rancho. The roof and two of the walls had fallen in, and the ruins had evidently been considered by the neighbors as a most suitable deposit for all sorts of household refuge and filth. Better to pitch our camp outside of the town than here, and this we accordingly determined to do after purchasing a stock of provisions. But at this juncture, an important personage attracted by the crowd, and imagining that this was a revolution that must be nipped in the bud, came on the scene. 
This was no less than the Comandante, who was only distinguished from his humbler fellow citizens by having a rusty pistol and an ancient cavalry sword stuck into his broad belt. A pompous man, as became his dignity, but a very well-disposed little person was this. Robust, well-fed, and oily, both in countenance and manner, he much resembled my idea of the renowned Sancho Panza, that worthy, when governor of his long-promised island, must have been something like this magistrate. He shook hands with us, waved his hand in a patronizing manner round the village, and said, Welcome to our town, the hour sounding much as if it signified my, for he evidently never forgot that he was the presiding genius of the place. Our town is at the entire disposal of the caballeros, our herds, our horses, our domestic hearths. There was nothing that was not ours. We were lords of all we surveyed, according to him. We explained that we really could not trespass so much on his generosity as to accept the whole city, but were very much obliged to him nevertheless. We would be content with food for ourselves and our horses, and cover for the night if possible. Brought down from this florid Castilian talk to matter-of-fact, the poor fellow looked perplexed. It was evidently more difficult to satisfy this simple want than to give us the entire town. He stopped his discourse, looked anxious and doubtful, scratched his head, made and lit a cigarette. Then he placed his forefinger to the side of his nose and with a thoughtful frown contemplated the weathercock on the church steeple. So he stood for some moments while the little children, silent and with open mouths, gazed with awe at their pondering ruler. Suddenly he slapped his thigh, rubbed his fat hands merrily, and said, Come, senores, come, I know now. He took us to a house where dwelt an old lady and her two daughters. She had one large bare mud room on the street, which she kindly placed at our service. It was quite a sumptuous apartment, for it even had a floor of wooden planks, and the mud walls were whitewashed to the height of six feet. Windows, of course, there were none, but there was a doorway big enough to answer all purposes. This was a very garrulous old lady. She tried to monopolize us altogether and would not permit her comely daughters to come near us. A most argus-eyed duenna, she cruelly took the young ladies altogether out of the establishment as soon as we arrived and locked the poor things up somewhere at the other extremity of the town. We tied up our horses in the courtyard for the night, but as it was impossible to procure any algaroba or alfalfa for them, the poor beasts had to content themselves with a large pile of the branches of some tree. However, they seemed to enjoy their frugal repast. Even Manuel's horse fell too heartily. At lunchtime, he had patiently fasted, gazing contemptuously at the others as they munched their algaroba. Our hostess drove the bats, cockroaches, snakes, lizards, and other tenants of our apartment into the street and swept and garnished this room till it looked so large and beautiful that it inspired the usually stolid Manuel with a most luminous idea. What a fine room this would be for a baile, he said. The very thing, we cried, so we determined to give a grand ball to the whole town this night. In this quaint country, it is quite the thing for a passing stranger to do this and the people will not be shy at accepting his invitation. A musician will easily be found, and two dollars worth of vile gin is all that is necessary in the way of refreshments. 
we impressed a blind and villainous-looking gaucho who could play baile music on the guitar, and after dinner proceeded to decorate our room. We stuck about thirty tallow candles around the walls, borrowed some wooden benches, and got a few bottles of square face from the store, and all was ready. We then issued our invitations. Our hostess was in raptures over the whole thing. She even released her daughters and permitted them to accept our invitation. Of course, all the aristocracy was invited, the judge, the comandante, the storekeeper, and any of the other sects that might belong to them. The dancing was soon in full swing, and a merry time we had of it. The chinas had donned their feast-day frocks, had adorned themselves with cherry-colored ribbons, and looked pretty enough as their dark eyes flashed with delight and excitement. Twang, 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 twang. All night flowed out the old Spanish airs from the guitar, and as the people danced, the guitarist sang in a nasal drone words to the tunes he played, as is the custom here, words generally of his own composition, love songs translating the subtle meanings of the figures of the dance. For many of these quaint and stately dances are whole stories of a love, such as the zampa, the handkerchief dance, and the gato in which the fingers are snapped like castanets. Only two persons take part in these dances, a man and a woman. The man is wooing the woman. She is coy and turns away. He follows, implores. All the gamut of feeling and passion is traversed in this dumb show in which each movement of the supple, lithe forms of these marvelous dancers is full of expression. And all the while the guitar player sings in rough but often powerful words the story of the dance, the passionate wooing of the man, the coyness, the subtle byplay of the woman, lovesick yet feigning indifference, again the lover's despair and ultimately his triumph when at last the girl can hide her heart no longer, returns his passion and confesses her love. It was an awful and rare sight to see Jourdain in his top boots dancing the gato with our venerable but jovial hostess as a partner. There was no sleep for us that night, for our indefatigable guests did justice to our entertainment and kept it up till dawn, as is the nature of their race, winding themselves up to a madness, a terpsichorean delirium. It was a demonic whirl of supple limbs, with at times a bedlam shouting. The atmosphere of the room was hot and stifling, with the heavy clouds of dust raised by the twinkling feet and the fumes of tobacco. Those who did not dance themselves sat down, clapped their hands in time with a measure, and shouted incoherently to encourage the frenzy of those that did. It was a strange spectacle, and showed us that in the dance, if in nothing else, the Indo-Spaniard can be more than energetic. End of chapter 13